Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and of course it's Chris. Chris, who have we got on today? Hi mate, I have closed the window with the notes in it. There we go. <laughs> We've got Andrew Hess, originally from Derbyshire and now living and working in Wales. And he's here to talk about his first book. And this is where I'm going to massacre my Welsh pronunciation. Escape to Griech Castle, a Jewish refugee story. Andrew, how are you doing and how badly did I murder that? That wasn't too bad. And to be honest with you, I'm probably not going to be a lot better. So my apologies in advance to speakers of Welsh uh, with my variable pronunciations in that particular. I but, think but we're all going to butcher on. it. That's going to be that's going to be a good one because, yeah, forget me in Welsh. Everybody laughs that I'm scared of Welsh people. So uh, this is going to be interesting. There's nothing to yeah. be scared of. They're lovely people. <laughs> anyway, this is this is kind of my topic. I'm going to feel very at home today. So uh, let's uh, let's start with the first question. So, oh, my God, I'm going to massacre this. Um what links Abigail Abigaili? Abigaili. Abigaili. Uh, and the Nazi state. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, good question. First of all, for anybody who's not sure, Abigaili is a town on the North Wales coast, um, roughly between Rill and Colwyn Bay, to give you some sort of geographical perspective. In terms of what links it with the Nazi state, well, the obvious answer is nothing, really, um, except this rather remarkable occurrence um, of the arrival of 200 young Jewish refugees um, at the very end of August, beginning of September 1939, so quite literally on the eve of the Second World War. And they stayed here for two years. Um, what these kids had in common was the fact that they were all here as a result of arriving in Britain on the kinder transport. Um, which I can develop into if you wish. They were all aged 14 to 17. So in contemporary terms today, you would refer to them as school students in year nine through to the sixth form, year 13. They were, for the most part, German. Um, Some of them were Austrian, some of them were Czech, but they were all from areas that were Nazi controlled. The other thing that linked them was they were all members of some form of Zionist group, um, Zionists looking for the creation of a Jewish homeland. So many of them were members of an organisation called Bachad and others, an organisation called Youth Aliyah. Um, the kinder transport itself had offered safe haven in Britain um, to the children of German Jews who were trying to get out of Germany. Getting out of Germany, very, very difficult to do, very few countries willing to take them. Their desired location for many of Palestine wasn't easy to get to either. So the concept was, if Britain could offer 
a safe haven for the children that would hopefully alleviate the problems the parents had in trying to secure immigration and then having achieved it the kids in Britain could then find them and relocate and, and reunite with their families. Um, the summer of 39 though things to start becoming a little bit critical um, the vast majority of these young people who came in were taken in by foster carers um, the people of Britain were incredibly receptive to this. But inevitably, over time, the number of foster carers was, was declining and not necessarily keeping up with the pace of new arrivals. So many of the youngsters were finding themselves being held in reception camps, mainly in the south of England, that were becoming a little bit overcrowded. So into that comes part of the kinder transport story that I don't think really has been, well, it's been a bit neglected in my view. There's plenty of good stuff out there on the youngsters who went into foster care, but very little about the minority, and admittedly it was a minority, who went into specially created residential training centres, or as they were referred to, uh, the Hakshara. And the most important and the biggest of all the ones that were created was the one in Abigail, which was why I'm particularly interested in it. There were a number of others. There were about 20 in total that were created. Um, most of them, though, only housed a very small number of people, maybe 20, 30, that kind of order. So as the, the youngsters are sort of backing up in reception centres, Zionist groups like Bakhad um, have this idea of trying to create more Hakshara to take these youngsters out of the reception centres, but also, more importantly, to begin to provide them with the necessary skills and training as a future pioneer in the creation of a Jewish homeland. And of course, we need to remember, as I'm sure your listeners will know, there was no Israel at this time. That doesn't come into being until 1948. Um, but it was tricky finding centres. And entering the story at this point is a very important man called Arya Handler, who was already um, was really 24 years old, very young man, but very, very efficient, very, very good, already involved in creating Alia projects to Palestine. And he had this idea that if you could create a large super centre, a place that would have not just 20 or 30 kids, but maybe as many as two or 300, you could, first of all, alleviate the problems in the reception camps a little, but also use it as a kind of beacon, a flagship um, for the entire movement to create this, this example that others could follow. The problem he had, though, was, was finding a location it would need to be, first of all, the building they were looking for would need to be big enough to be able to house two, three hundred million people. So we're looking at an enormous building. It would need to be in a part of the country that wasn't going to be affected by evacuation should war break out. And of course, the, the plans for Operation Pied Piper were sort of well advanced by the summer of 1939. So there's no point looking for a property in or near a city. It would need to be in a rural area. But it would need to be anyway, because the third big thing would be that these, these Hackshire training centres would focus very much on developing agricultural skills. So this property would need to be in an agricultural area, an area surrounded by a strong agrarian economy um, and, and with plenty of farms within the vicinity that these young people could work on. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, it had to be a building that was available, um, a building that somebody didn't want um, or a building that could be gained very, very cheaply or preferably even free. So this concept of creating a sort of flagship supercenter had, had not really got very far. But during August 1939, 
um, he became aware, Harry Hunger became aware of Drave Castle um, in Abergelly, owned by Lord Dundonald, who lived in Scotland. It wasn't a property he particularly wanted anymore. And actually, it was in the process of, although the, the legislation for the requisitioning of property wasn't quite in place yet, plenty of talk of it. And he was already effectively offering it to the government should war break out to be used by the government for whatever purpose, purposes they wanted. The government didn't really have much of an idea of what to do with it either. So suddenly there was on the scene this, this amazingly large building, this, this castle in North Wales, in an agricultural area, well away from an evacuation zone that was suddenly available. And Ari Handler heard of it. He came to pay a visit roughly mid-August of 1939, along with his brother, Dr. Julius Handler. And they immediately recognised that this place ticked all of the boxes they were looking for. It wasn't ideal in some ways. It was empty. It was it had not been lived in for the best part of 15 years. Um, there were going to be problems, but in other ways, it was absolutely perfect. And so they lobbied to be allowed to use it um, for Bachad to, to bring these youngsters to it. Lord Dundonald had no personal objection either. And on August 28th, 1939, permission was given. And over the next two or three days, 200 young kids were transported from various parts of the country straight to the castle and the project was underway and what they created as i mentioned before was i say it's a very neglected story this 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 huge experimental community that, that's kind of largely gone unnoticed so like you said the, these kids are sort of from year nine up to, to sixth form yeah how, how did they find the the journey from um for from the Reich to England, um, how, how was was it a troublesome journey? And uh, yes, um, for some of them particularly so. It, it's 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 kind of hard to give a single answer to that because obviously every youngster there were ten thousand ultimately that came to Britain and two hundred so that came to Abergelly. Everyone has a slightly different experience. Um, it was very variable. The generic approach, the the approach that the vast majority experienced, just purely in terms of the geography of it, was that they were collected in a local town or city to where they lived, so it might be Hamburg or Kiel or wherever, um, placed onto trains, ferried across Germany, across the Dutch border, um, to the Hook of Holland near Rotterdam. There they transferred to a ferry. The ferry would take them across to Harwich in Essex. That's where they get off the ferry. There they'd be met by representatives from Bacard or Euthalia or, or whoever. And in many cases, then moved to Liverpool Street Station in London. Um, there's a, a monument there today to the kinder transport. It was a, a key sort of hub for where the, the youngsters were then, um, in some cases, relocated directly to foster carers, in other, in other cases, taken to a reception centre whilst a foster carer was being found. Most kinder transport children would have had that journey. Um, in, in, um, together in terms of the similarity of it. But in terms of individual experiences, they, they were quite variable. Um, a key part of what I've tried to do in the book I've written is to, to really get the voices of the young people themselves as far as possible. And looking into them, many of them had different experiences. Some of them were really excited. This was a, this was a huge adventure. It was wouldn't call it a holiday but it was it was an adventure they were going somewhere else it was going to be exciting it was going to be different others um perhaps those maybe slightly older or with a, a slightly keener idea of the politics of the time were quite somber um some of them well all of them couldn't have possibly known that 
what they were embarking upon was a journey that they would ultimately never really return from. It was for many of them their final goodbye um, with parents or siblings at a train station somewhere in Germany. One or two had an inkling um, that this could be the end of something, but but nobody could know that. One of the youngsters um, in, in the book um, who came to, to Drich was, was quite convinced this would all be very short term. Soon be back with his family and everything would be good again. So very variable in terms of the emotions of it. Um, one particular account that sticks in my mind of a, of a group of youngsters um, shows their, their tremendous sense of having escaped from something. They refer to the moment they crossed the Dutch border as suddenly all jumping around and slapping each other like monkeys. Um, so you can see in that that, that sense of relief almost um, for some of them as well. Within the group that came to the castle in Abigailo, there were, there, were, there were two or three different groups. Um, there was a group that was collected at one of the reception centres in Kent. There was one group that was redirected straight from a kinder transport from Harwich. Um, but interestingly within the group was, was a group of 31 that, that went straight through from what proved to be ultimately the very final kinder transport to make it out. Um, and their journey to Britain was, was a particularly fraught one. Um, they'd, they got as far as Cologne initially when Nazi officials jumped on the train and threw them off. They weren't going to allow them to go any further. And they spent a night in a hostel whilst a Dutch refugee charity got involved to try and figure out the way to move them forward. And the next day, some buses turned up and they were bussed across the border into Holland. Um, one of the sort of stupid things about the Nazis here, they, they were desperate to get the Jews out, but they wouldn't allow German ports to be used, hence the move to Holland. Um, as they crossed the border, they, they, there's a re- an account by a couple of them of the somewhat overdramatic behaviour of one of the German border guards who waved his rifle at them. And they got a lot of abuse as they crossed the border as well. But because they were on buses, when they arrived at the Hook of Holland, they thoroughly expected to have missed the ferry. But very fortunately, the... Uh, the captain delayed his departure um, for this group to get there on time, and they they just managed it. The tragedy is that the group following them, the next transport, didn't make it out. When they arrived in Britain, um, particularly at Liverpool Street, which was the first time they'd really had a chance to look around them, again within the accounts, there are there many interesting stories. They were they were their memories. You know, it's amazing what, what sticks in your memory many years later, isn't it? What for one of them, the thing that, that stuck in their memory was being offered white bread. What's that? That was new. Um, another one had a, a terrifying experience, really. He, a couple of them were, were, were amazed to see ranks of taxis um, and that the drivers were mostly Jewish. Uh, that was, was that allowed? Were, were people allowed, were Jews allowed to work in Britain? And one of them had a brief conversation. One of the taxi drivers leaned out. And I, I assume, I don't know for certain, but I assume in some sort of Cockney accent asked, did you come here today? And this youngster who spoke a little bit of English, but not great, he, he misheard it. And he heard the question, did you come here to die? Which frightened him. Oh, dear God, are you serious? No, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and that's still in the book too. So, you know, so those initial experiences of Britain, you've got to bear in mind, of course, these youngsters, they'd spent most of their life certainly their conscious memory uh, of their life uh, as a persecuted minority. So why should the people of Britain be any different? But um, 
yeah, so from there, like I say, some of them, um, the next experience was to come straight to Abigail, but for some of those who arrived a bit earlier, they went to various reception centres, and the other main group that ended up in Abigail went to um, a farm in Kent initially, called Great Engham, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, I apologise to anybody in Kent for getting that wrong, um, and when they got the news that they were going to be shifted again, but this time to a castle in North Wales, you can see almost this almost like childlike excitement, you know, a castle. A castle, amazing, you know. But then the final leg of the journey, and for some of them, I say it went, it went all the way through from Germany, through Holland to Britain, and then straight on to North Wales. But for some of those who'd been here for a few days or weeks, um, they were then put on buses and moved across to North Wales. But by coincidence, there was no design and no plan to this. Almost every single group that arrived separately always arrived during the night, you know, sort of two in the morning or four in the morning, whatever, during darkness. Which was a slight problem for later on because it meant the locals in Abigail actually, generally speaking, didn't have much of an idea anything was happening. You know, suddenly there was a community where they come from. Um, but also the first impressions of the kids once they arrived at the castle, you know, they, they get up the, the buses or whatever, they look up, they, they, they see this amazing building. And it's so exciting. They go in and then suddenly it's all different. It's empty. It's dark it's dusty it's dirty it's run down there's nothing in it there's a, there's a chair that's broken there's a table in this huge building and that's it and for the first few nights most but all of them had to sleep on the floor uh, find a hard floor somewhere and it was a, a very very horrible start but i guess all that would have been massively exacerbated by their recent experience you know they were collectively incredibly tired some have been traveling for days over hundreds of miles it was a place they didn't know. Um, they were dispirited, they were grumpy, they were disorientated. It had been an emotional roller coaster. So to go back to your original question, what were their experiences? Um, they're many and varied. But collectively, this, this must, well, it was quite clearly an incredibly traumatic experience for them. And they had absolutely no idea what the future held. Well, you've already touched on a little bit, so let's 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 delve into it a little bit because they've well, it's a culture shock, really, <laughs> going from Germany and Austria to yeah. a, a tiny little village in. in it's, it's, it's a small town, but yeah, to take your point, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's a huge, yeah, yeah. Talk to us about how what they actually thought. I mean, obviously, the castle was a little bit empty when they arrived, but how did they experience all of this? Initially, very badly. Um, it's. It, I say it was empty, it was dirty, it was run down. They didn't quite know what to do with themselves. And of course, there was also a lack of food. All they really had was stuff they brought with them on the buses. So establishing the centre, of course, over the period of a few nights, therefore, we, we suddenly go from, from nobody to a group of 200 young people um, with a, another 50 or so, 40 to 50 young adult helpers. And by young adult helpers, the, this is a group called the Haverim, who are the kind of, you know, the leaders of the group. They are themselves very young. Most of them were themselves had just turned 18 so some had actually arrived on kinder transport themselves um and age-wise the vast majority aria handler the founder of all this was only 24 most of them were in their early to mid-20s the oldest i found amongst the entire group was 33 and that was a very much an outlier so this this group collectively they're here and they've got to establish something um and it went it, it was it started badly but it also started brilliantly which might sound like a, a strange thing to say so i'll just expand on that slightly first thing is it started badly because they had little time to prepare this the, the castle only became available to the 28th of august and in three or four days there's 200 kids there 
There have been attempts. Um, Dr. Julius Handler had been at the castle for a week or so prior to this with a few others trying to get it ready, but they, they couldn't have achieved much in that time. And so for those first few days, as I mentioned, they, they all slept on floors. They all had jobs to do in the day of just literally cleaning and tidying. It was, it was dispiriting. It, there was a sense of despair. For some of them, you know, for those who've been at Great England, for example, in Kent, and they've been there, they've been housed in tents or disused railway carriages, which wasn't particularly great either. But despite that, it appeared they'd even traded downwards. So it was it was just not a good start. But what's remarkable about it is that just a few days into the um, into this, well, this sorry, one more part to say perhaps before I do, the, the the final kind of kick in the guts, if I can put it that way, was the declaration of war. Um, they'd arrived, there was no war, and within a couple of days of arriving, Britain goes to war, and they were gathered together on the forecourt of the castle to be told this. And uh, I won't go into it now, but it's in the book. But there, there's some really interesting accounts of how they received that. You know, for many of them, that was that was a body blow. That this this ambition, this thought, this belief that they'd be reunited with their parents sometime soon, straight out the window with that news. For others, however, it was great. At last, somebody's going to stand up to Hitler. So there was a it was that. It, it 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 also affected the mood of these young people. Who let's not remember are not sleeping. They're not eating. It, it was it was really. I describe it in the book as, as teetering on the edge of failure very, very quickly. But just a couple of days later, it all changed um, dramatically, really, almost like a miracle. Um, a whole bunch of lorries turned up, sporting the livery of Marks and Spencer's, the big retail group. Um, and I won't go into it now, but the daughter of Michael Marks was a, was a key figure behind the scenes in assisting um, them getting the castle in the first place, but also almost certainly behind providing this, this fleet of lorries that brought beds, mattresses, blankets, and most importantly, one truck filled full of food. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And almost immediately after that, on the very same day, uh, a group of locals turned up from the local Baptist chapel. Um, They met Dr. Julius Handler in the previous week. He made an attempt to go around the local chapels and churches and sort of say hello and try and explain what was about to happen. And he had a really good response, but the Baptist in particular um, wanted to meet with him. They talked to him beforehand and were basically saying, what can we do? What, what do you want? And generally speaking, these, these training centres didn't take charity, um, not, not out of any sort of um, spite, but just because they were trying to establish self-sufficient communities, they wanted to, to do it themselves. That was part of the process. But Dr. Handel was quite a, a, a pragmatic man. His response was, well, anything, frankly, we've got nothing, so <laughs> please. And they turned up on the same day with a, a few horse-drawn carts with furniture, benches, kitchen appliances, and various other bits and pieces. And so, in the course of this one single day, the place transformed. One of the youngsters referred to it as the day the castle finally came alive. Suddenly they had beds. Suddenly they had blankets. Suddenly they had food. And the whole spirit of the place was lifted 
um, like by very, very simplistic things, but but it meant such a lot to them. As time went on, of course, the donations came in. They were they were never, I don't want to get the impression they were suddenly well off. They weren't. The, the castle remained very spartan throughout. Um, furniture was always a problem. The beds, some of them were double beds, so many of the kids found themselves sharing um, the bedrooms themselves, although they were quite big because it is a castle. They, they were sharing sort of eight to 12 to a room, so they were more like mini dormitories rather than individual bedrooms. So they were never materialistically well off at any point. But that that day, when those things happened, that that changed everything. Suddenly, there was this, this idea that maybe, maybe this thing's going to work. Maybe there is something in the future here. Added to that, was the work of the, the, the leadership group. There was a small leadership group, um, again, all very young men. I've mentioned Aria Handler, who was the sort of founder of all this. Um, but he was involved in many of the projects, so he would be kind of in and out. He was often going back to London to work on other projects as well. And he put in charge of it um, a chap called Erwin Seligman, very, very important character. He'd been with the kids at Great Anger. He was the one who organised that particular group and came to the castle. And he effectively became... The kids had different names for him. Some referred to him as a sort of headmaster, um, but he was the maverick. He was the he was the the group leader. He was the, the in modern day terminology, you'd refer to him as the person in charge of student groups of school. Um, and he recognised, along with Dr. Handler, that despite the fact they'd suddenly got a few beds in the way, that there was a very poor rapport amongst the group. You've got to bear in mind, most of these kids, although they were in a group of two hundred, they were incredibly lonely. They didn't really know anybody in that group. They, they'd met them maybe on the, in the transport a few days earlier. They'd spent a couple of days in a tent at Great Engham. They'd been on a bus coming across the country, but they didn't really know them. There were a couple of exceptions. There were a couple of kids there who did know people uh, from back home. And there's one story of a girl who was uh, amazed to see um, on one of the other arrival groups that her best friend was on it. But generally speaking, most of these kids didn't know each other. And and, and that was a problem. Erwin Sadden had recognised that quite quickly, that if... If this place is going to survive, if it's going to progress, if it's going to become this flagship centre that's designed to be, that you've got to create that camaraderie, that team spirit very, very quickly. So he went to work really quickly along with other helpers to, to organise the days, to get a routine going. You know, he believed that there was some there's safety in boundaries, there's a sense of security when you've got a plan when you know what you're up to. And also to give the kids something to do, obviously. So within a matter of three weeks, he had successfully created the basics of what would continue for the next two years. So he personally, along with all the leaders, went around all the local farms, knocking on doors, offering farmers free labour. Um, these kids are available to you. All we ask in return is you, you give them meaningful things to do from which they can develop agricultural skills, but otherwise they're free to you. By the end of September, within a month of the Castle um, project opening, he'd secured employment on local farms, in his own estimation, for about 75% of them, and very shortly afterwards, 100% of them. So that, that went really quickly. So a typical day soon became established. The, the concept was they'd all be woken at about 5.30 in the morning, which sounds to us ridiculously early. It would be a very long day. Um, half of them would then go off to work on the local farms. The other half would stay at the castle, where they would receive education. Classes were set up. It was relatively basic and limited education, focusing mainly on Hebrew, on the learning of English um, and religious studies, but nevertheless, education all the same. At roughly midday, the groups from the farms would come back to the castle. The groups in classes would go out to the farms and the groups who'd come back would go into the classes. So the day was split into those two. 
all of that would sort of normally come to an end around about sort of 6 p.m. And then the groups would then collectively go into what they called the rosters, which weren't particularly popular. But this was stuff to do in the evenings. And this, this was stuff to do in the castle or around the place. It might be cleaning. It might be laundry. It might be forestry collecting logs from the woods nearby for the fires or whatever it might be. Potentially, those evening rosters could go on for four hours. Usually not. But it did mean that a day could potentially have been from sort of 5.30 in the morning till 10 p.m. at night. So there were long days. But what Sally Bandin was, was create this, at least create a routine, create a, a daily expectation, which proved to be really, really important in terms of taking the kids' minds off these various things to an extent, but also developing this concept of creating a kibbutz-like atmosphere within the group. So... It, it, it took a bit of time to establish, but actually to do all that within literally a month, um, I was pretty impressive. So Lech Mich Am Arsch uh, is a great way to start. It's a great name for a chapter. Loved it. Spent a lot of time laughing about it. But <laughs> you, you also talk about how the kids started to learn Welsh. Mm. And after mine and Alina's dicey pronunciation, how, how, did, uh, how did the German kids get on with it? <laughs> um, actually pretty well. Um, they didn't receive any formal education at the castle, but working on the farms, they working with local Welsh farm labourers, they, they began to pick it up actually quite quickly. Um, what they discovered, though, was that there was a real benefit to learning Welsh. Uh, one, of, one of the kids described the farm as he, he sort of separated them as, as those who regard as English and those who regard as Welsh. And he, he commented that the English farmers were more liberal. I don't think he meant that in a political way. I just think they were a bit more easygoing, perhaps. Um, but what the kids discovered was that if you spoke Welsh to a Welsh farmer, they became a kitten straight away. You, One of them described it as if you could speak Welsh to a Welsh farmer, you could get away with murder. So naturally, they all then vied to learn as much as possible because that might result in a slightly easier workday or slightly better jobs and the increased possibility of getting some sort of little backhander at the end of the week, maybe a bit of food or in some cases, a little bit of cash was given to them. So they really picked up the Welsh. It was it was very much, though, picked up um, on the farms. It was sometimes quite industrial. One young lad, I don't think he knew this for a while, but his mentor um, had been teaching in Welsh for some time. And then he discovered after a while that he'd been taught largely how to swear in Welsh. Um, so, and they had various experiences with their ability to use it amongst the locals. But yeah, they, they, they picked up quite a lot and quite quickly. You, we talked about it before we started recording, but you have to have to tell us the arse story. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, I was going to do that. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's probably my favourite story in the entire book. So I think it, it apart from being funny, it, it just encapsulates so many other things. It's a story in the spring of 1940. By the spring, the, the, the community has become really well established. It's really working. And there's a tremendous sense, you can see it amongst the kids, of, of finally becoming kids, that they're, they're behaving like kids. It's almost as if that a lot of those burdens, it's not that they're not there, but, but they're liberated, they're more confident. And a lot of local dignitaries began to turn up. They had a pretty open-door policy in this regard, local mayors, politicians or whatever. Um, and it was almost a bit, after a while, a bit annoying because, oh, another one's here. So Erwin Seligman grabbed a group of kids, about a dozen of them, lined them up, um, ready for the next dignitary to sort of come along and say hello. So you can imagine these lads all stood there a little bit kind of fed up with another dignitary. 
And this chap comes forward. And I, I don't know why. There's no reason for this, but in my in my head, I sort of imagine him as a very posh Englishman, but he almost certainly was Welsh. But he, he approaches the first student, and he sort of he, he sort of leans in, offers his hand, and he says, uh, "How how how do you say? How do you do in your language?" And this lad, quick as a flash, throws back, "Let me canosh." Erwin Saliman behind it is instantly flinching, goes red face. Before he can intervene, this dignitary, he's got the words. He goes straight to the next one, offers his hand, lek me kamash. This kid throws it straight back with a big smile. He goes down the line, every single one, lek me kamash. And by the time he's got to the end of it, he's confident, this guy, he's got it. He can say it, he's, he's saying it with increasing gusto. And what he does not realise that he's gone down an entire line of a dozen students saying, lick my arse. And... I mean, I'm sure these kids got one hell of a telling off moment selling them afterwards. But I think that's, apart from being a funny story, it's, it's, I think it's really important. To, it, it, it's, it's the classic kids being kids, isn't it? Um, and can you imagine them having done that with a German official just 12 months earlier? You know, so to have that degree of, of feeling of security, self-confidence, self-belief, maybe a bit of arrogance, I don't know. But the point is, it, it, it shows a real change. And I think that's such an important story to tell because they they're a group of kids, this group at the castle. You know, once they become established, once they become confident, once they realise the locals are not anti-Semitic, they can start behaving like kids behave. And they do all the things that kids do. They 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 muck around, they play pranks on each other, they have a laugh, they they fall out, they fall in love, they fall out of love. It, it, it is my favourite chapter too because it, it kind of it just it, it's a counterpoint to the darkness of the, of the whole story. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's funny. And it's about the car crash. That's all I know. There's a car crash. Tell us about there that. There's a car crash, and it proves to be an incredibly important one. Um, I mentioned Erwin Salibman, I mentioned Daria Handler, Julius Handler. Another key factor at the castle, or key person at the castle, was a guy called David Smith. A um, bit of an enigma for a long time for me because it's, it's, first it's quite a common name, so figuring out who he was was quite difficult. I won't go into the full details, but what compounded it was I discovered after a while that actually he wasn't called David Smith at all. Um, he was actually David Schmidt. He was uh, a youngster who arrived back in 1916, with his, sorry, not, sorry, born in 1916, but had arrived some years earlier with his dad, who was a Menshevik, a Russian revolutionary who'd escaped the Bolsheviks. But he'd grown up in England um, and he got... A clear English accent. He was a solicitor again in his early twenties. Very important figure because he was kind of the, the legal and financial mind behind the, the whole community. He was very good at finding grants and finding money, which the community needed a heck of a lot of. This was an expensive operation running this. Um, unfortunately, in the spring of 1940, um, he was the only person at the castle to have a car. He lived nearby in Clandidno. Um, he was on the way to Liverpool um, to pick up a new a new person joining the group, uh, the new chef um, for the kitchen. And on the way back from Liverpool near Hollywell, um, a sheep straight across the road, he changed direction rapidly to avoid it, but went straight down an embankment. The car rolled several times, ended up on its roof. It was quite a nasty accident. He was pulled out of the wreck, um, but not in a good condition, a suspected fractured spine. He was moved to Liverpool, then to London, and... He never returned to the castle. Um, tragically, he died of his injuries very shortly afterwards. And that was a, a crucial moment for the castle because they lost a very important person to the community and a very important person in terms of finding the finance. So the car crash, it, 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 it's part of the story that, that leads us to the end. 
and, and the, the beginning of the end. It's not by itself, but the loss of Smith proved to be incredibly important. So is, this the, is, that, is that one of the reasons why the Huxara starts to be closed down? It's a factor, but the problem was other factors began to come together. There, there was a significant change um, in June 1940 um, after Dunkirk and, and Winston Churchill coming on the scene, uh, the beginnings of internments um, for enemy aliens. And what that meant was that anybody aged 16 or higher, which was you know, over half of the castle community, who was an enemy alien, so German or Austrian, um, were, were taken away uh, and interned. And that was a real body blow as well, because it, it removed probably only about 20 out of the 200, but that's 10% of the community and some very important people, the founders of the whole project, were suddenly whisked away. That, plus the loss of Smith, was also compounded by another simple fact that, that all, all that the Hacksher faced, which was declining numbers. Um, once kinder transport came to an end at the beginning of the war, there was no longer a supply of new blood, as it were. So as this particular community was, was a group of 14 to 17-year-olds, once the 17-year-olds became 18, they, they moved on. And that would have been fine under normal circumstances because a new group of 14-year-olds could be fed in, but they weren't there anymore. So declining numbers was also a part of it. But ultimately, by the end of 1940, the real issue was, was financial. Um, it, this, this, as I mentioned before, it's a very expensive operation. And to compound that, the castle itself, as, as brilliant as it was, um, that was also expensive. It wasn't in great condition. It needed a lot of work doing. The water pump was always a problem. They never quite solved that and couldn't afford to replace it. The electricity generator was broken. That wasn't replaced. There, there were numerous problems with the building. And Bachad, the, the, the organisation behind this, who, who ran several um, of these centres around Britain, was also running out of money. They began to close several of them. And ultimately, they had to make a decision um, about Greek. It, it was the flagship. It had proved itself to be. It had done what it was supposed to do. But could they really afford to maintain it much longer? And the simple answer was no. And they were offered an alternative location in Birmingham. The Cadbury family um, were willing to, to donate a new building, um, which became Avoncroft College, which was newer, cheaper to run. And so given all of those circumstances, the decision was taken to begin to wind the community down. And that, that process really began very early in 1941. It was pretty imperceptible. It was slow, but there was this slow decline. Um, in 1941 that ultimately led to its closure in September. Why does it close? It's mainly financial, as I mentioned. Um, there are different theories on this. Um, there is one that does the rounds that it was Lord Dundonald who had suddenly realised there were Jews living in his castle and went on some anti-Semitic rage and had them thrown out. Um, but I go through that in, in the book and that, that, that's total nonsense. Um, he'd, he'd been one of the people behind it in the first place, so that was ridiculous. There's another possibility suggested by one person that local farm work had begun to dry up, but um, that that is also completely untrue, and I sort of debunked that in the book as well. So there, ultimately, there are no real external factors for this, so the only real answer to it is the logical um, explanation that it was becoming too expensive. And as I say, Bachad themselves were, were struggling with money by the stage they were closing other centres. And this one was one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive to run. Um, and if they were going to maintain it, they would have to spend a lot of money on 
improving it and repairing it. Um, and that really wasn't a viable option for them, unfortunately. So how would you sum up the exper um, experiences of the refugees at Greek Castle and in those last two years? Overall, an incredible experience. It was, as I discussed earlier, a, a very a very difficult start, horrible, and particularly with all the context. But as I also explained, once they became established, the routines became established, they were working on local farms, they they went into town, they discovered people weren't anti-Semitic, they discovered things like the cinema. And I mentioned about them becoming being able to behave like kids again. It it was it became quite remarkable. Um genuine friendships formed. Um some of those friendships amongst the community became lifelong. Um, a couple of them got married um, further down the line. And after the war, quite a number of them did come back for visits to local people who they become friendly with during the war. Um, but I think for me, and, and, and probably um, a couple of good ways to bring this to an end, there's a, there's a couple of quotes. There's a lad called Ossie Findling who, when he looked back on it, um, in, in one single sentence, I think, summed up a great part of this. He, he just said that, this was where they learned what it meant to be free. But I think I'll give the final word to, to a chap called Henry Glantz, who I was very fortunate to interview. Um, unfortunately, not meet face to face because at the time it was COVID it was on. Um, but I asked him this question, you know, he was, I think he was 96 when I interviewed him and, uh, you know, what his abiding memory was. And he gave me just a one line answer, but a one sentence answer. But I think, I think the best way to sum it up. And he said it, it, it was a happy time within a sad time. So collectively for these youngsters, and of course there's there's more to the story once they once they leave the castle and they go on to do whatever it is they do next, and many of them went into the army or into war industries. And ultimately after the war, some of them stayed in Britain, some went to America, some of them did, of course, make it to to Israel. Arya Handler, who I mentioned at the beginning of this, was actually present at the Declaration of Israel in 1948. He was personally invited to it. They went on to do some remarkable things. And in, in the grand scheme of their lives, therefore, looking back on it, their time at the castle, which was two years, when they were, let's say, 14, 15, 16, for many of them, it's only a small moment in, in a whole lifetime. But what collectively you get from them is they, they looked back on it very fondly. It was a very important moment for them. It was at the beginning of a new life, if I can put it that way. When I did the prep, I really enjoyed the book because it does bring that you do kind of get that kind of moving out of darkness into light sort of thing that they leave the oppression of Nazi Germany and that they are given this new life and they do seem to start to really enjoy themselves. Yeah, yeah, they genuinely do. And it's remarkable to see, isn't it? When you, when you think of all the darkness around this, and what we all know about what was going to happen next with the Holocaust or whatever, to see this this moment, yeah, of, of yeah, a, a new life. Yeah, Andrew, this has been really, really good. It's a really interesting, interesting subject. And like you said, it's something that is quite ne neglected. Kinder transport is just a, it, it's sort of briefly touched upon in lots of general histories, but. Yeah, no, this is, it is a really fantastic book. But would you mind reminding everyone the title of your book so that I can't mispronounce it again yeah. and uh, <laughs> and uh, when it's available uh, and where? Of course. Apologies to my daughter, first of all, and anybody in Wales. It's Escape to Greek Castle, a Jewish refugee story, uh, published by Callum, which is an imprint of the University of Wales Press. And it becomes available uh, on the 22nd of June.
So hopefully it should be out uh, about, about the time this comes out. And we'll uh, we'll try and get it into the History Hack shop, which means podcast will get a tiny amount of the money and you'll get more money than if it's sold by a long river named online bookshop, who I won't say. Well, well, thank you. Th- thanks, for, thanks for those words too. That, that, that means a lot. I appreciate it. I hope that's been, I hope that's been useful to you. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's been, it's been really interesting. Um, thanks for coming on. No problem. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.